Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. These are the Kia Studios. It's a Saturday and we are winding our way through a weekend for the Braves as they close out a homestand and look to do so with a couple of more wins. They want to take this series from the Pittsburgh Pirates, then it's hit the road with the Philadelphia Phillies and Miami Marlins awaiting and perhaps that sixth consecutive National League East division crown. It could be waiting for the Atlanta Braves on the upcoming road trip as the magic number is all the way down to eight. We got a lot of great stuff to talk about on this week's show. Ronald Acuna Jr., if you didn't already know that he was making a statement regarding the National League MVP honors, I invite you to go ahead, grab a chair. We're going to have that conversation yet again here on this edition of From the Diamond. Before we get started and I let you know everything that we've got coming for you, I want to remind you, as always, make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with me and the show on social media. You can find me on pretty much every platform at Grant McCauley. Pretty easy stuff. You can like the show on Facebook. And if you need links to any or all of those things, go ahead on over to FromTheDiamond.com. I've got all of that up there for you on that top navigational bar. Getting back into things and really starting things out tonight. And as the Braves like to start things out, why not discuss Ronald Acuna Jr. for a little while? Because he's given us so much to discuss all year long. I've been handling a 40-40 tracker that I decided to just on a whim and really kind of on a feeling that I had that Ronald Acuna Jr. was about to have a really big year. He's had a really big year, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I've been tracking his pursuit of 40-40, which, by the way, has really started to line up because Ronald Acuna Jr.'s power has really started to show up here in the second half again, and here lately, Ronald has been on an absolute tear. That is a big part of his MVP campaign. And I've talked about this on the Locked On Sports Atlanta Braves postcast that I do on YouTube, which you are more than welcome to subscribe to. Try to recap as many Braves games as I can throughout the course of the season. So we're going to have a lot of Ronald Acuna Jr. discussion because just about every night, this guy does something that helps the Braves win a baseball game. Ronald is not really so much starting new clubs, I think, like 30-60. That was the big talk uh, over the course of the trip out to challenge the Los Angeles Dodgers for National League supremacy. The Braves take three out of four. Acuna has big hits, makes history with his 30th home run, and becomes the first player in baseball history with 30 homers and 60 stolen bases in the same season. He does all of that in the backdrop of a lot of talk about how Mookie Betts had just come up and taken the MVP award away from him, or at least become the front runner for it. And justifiably, there's a big case for Mookie Betts to be the National League's MVP. The numbers bear it out. But what Ronald Acuna Jr. did in joining the 3060 club or founding the 3060 club, I honestly think it's less about 
creating a club or there being something like 30-30 makes a lot of sense. It rolls off the tongue. It's very symmetrical. Same thing with 40-40. 30-60 is a little bit different. And I saw some pushback and people were like, okay, well, yeah, he's the first person to ever do it, but it's not a club. That's not really a thing, is it? Well, sure. If you want to be an absolute killjoy, you can have that line of conversation. But I would say less about there being a brand new club or group of players that may or may not ever do this thing since no one had done it before Ronald Acuna Jr. He's simply becoming the first player to do things. I think that in and of itself is pretty impressive. So Ronald, not only the first player to hit 30 homers and steal 60 bases, we won't call it a club anymore if that bothers somebody. Or if you want to call it a club, feel free to do that. I went digging back through his stats to see if I could find a few more. And spoiler alert, I have. And the 40-70 thing would certainly be a big deal because that's what his pace is on. To go back to the tracker that I keep every single time Ronald Acuna Jr. hits a home run or steals a base, you will see me post about it on X. So go ahead and follow me if you were not already aware of it. And if you are aware of it, well, thanks for riding along. But looking at what Ronald Acuna Jr. has done this year, his MVP case is so much more than just the power and speed. I wanted to find a stat that really showed the all-around greatness of his game. So I wanted to find out how many players in baseball history, because I couldn't think of too many in my lifetime, have batted 330 or better and stolen 60 bases. I've seen plenty of hitters hit 330. I've seen more than a few guys steal 60 bases. But how many guys have done it in the same season? Well, it's happened 47 times. However, only five players have done that since 1920. The game changed demonstratively around 1920. You may be familiar with a guy named Babe Ruth. And at that point, the home run became a little bit more prevalent in the game, and it remains a pretty prevalent part of today's game. And Ron Lacuna Jr. is known to hit a few home runs. So then I needed to see, okay, well, who's batted 330 and stolen 60 bases and done so while also hitting for power? Ronald Acuna Jr. is the only player in baseball history to bat 330, and I know the season's not over yet, to steal 60 or more bases and to hit 20 or more home runs. The next highest to do those things in the same season was 16 home runs. Ronald is simply not creating new clubs, but he is doing things that nobody's ever done before. So when you ask me, is the case for Ronald only about the pursuit of 40-40 or 30 30 30-60, 30-70, 40-70, all of these numbers and, and measurements that can tell you he's got the power and he's got the speed. Ronald Acuna Jr.'s numbers are so far and away beyond just the power and the speed. I'm keeping track of all the paces for 162, which, by the way, is a pretty big goal for Ronald Acuna Jr. to play in every single game this season. I asked him about it over the course of the Cardinals series, how important that is to him. And he said it's extremely important because if he's out there every day as he wants to be, it allows him to put up the numbers that he's putting up. And it means that he's healthy, which is something he has very much wanted the past couple of years. And of course, the opportunity to go out and play in October. But Ronald Acuna Jr.'s 162 game paces at this point, 220 hits, 147 runs. That would be a franchise record. 37 doubles, 40 homers, 104 runs batted in because he got to 90 on Friday, 83 walks, only 88 strikeouts, 73 stolen bases if you're scoring at home for that. All of that while batting 334, leading Major League Baseball with a 414 on base percentage, and essentially OPSing 1,000. He's at 999. 
forgive me, I rounded up. I just felt like it was the way to do it because we're talking about a season in which it's not just about home runs and stolen bases. And I know that the stolen bases have been a part of the discussion because the rules have changed. The pitcher disengagements, I think, is the biggest change. I mean, the bigger bases, I I guess, are, are playing a factor. But I don't think that's altogether something that's going to take someone from stealing 29 bases one year to 60 or 70 bases the next year. You have to make a concerted effort to go out there and do that. And while stolen bases, I'll grant you, I'll stipulate, they're up across baseball. But why is it somebody else out there running at the rate that Ronald Acuna Jr. is? Why are multiple players, if you want to say that Usteri Ruiz of the Athletics is also doing this, there are tons of guys. If you just look at StatCast sprint speed leaderboards and guys that have stolen bases you know, in bunches in the past, but they're not stealing at the rate that Ronald is. So I feel like that just tells you he has unlocked a next level of the game. And everybody has the same rules to work with. So if it was that easy, I would just think that more teams, more players will be doing it. But I feel like clubs are also still kind of trained in the idea that they're more risk averse to stolen bases. You look at the 1980s and some of the numbers that you see, Ricky Henderson's numbers, for example. You want to know how many times Ricky Henderson would get caught stealing in the average season? It was more than a handful. I mean, Ricky, he stole 1,400 bases, 1,406 to be precise. But he got thrown out an awful lot as well. He holds the all-time record in both. 335 times he was caught stealing. A lot of those happened early in his career. 1982, Ricky Henderson set the single-season record with 130 steals. We're not talking about Ronald Acuna Jr. getting there. But Ricky Henderson also got thrown out 42 times. So this guy attempted 172 stolen bases in one season. That's mind-boggling. There are teams that don't attempt 172 stolen bases over the course of a season. Even with these new rules, I think we're still going to see numerous teams that do not attempt to run that much. That speaks to Ricky's greatness. But to bring it back to Ronald Acuna Jr., I just feel like he is doing something that few, if any, other players are doing. And that's in addition to his premium power, his on-base skills, and the fact that he has gone from being a player that strikes out about 26% of the time to being a player who strikes out less than 12% of the time. That is just a next-level upgrade for a player who was already considerably better than just about everybody else he steps out on a baseball field with. So, the Ronald Acuna Jr. show. It continues on. He is now five home runs away from a 40-40 season. He's got the Major League lead with 63 stolen bases. He has a chance at Otis Nixon's franchise record of 72 steals set back in 1991. He's only nine away from that with 22 games to play. He's got those 22 games to get those five homers, to get to 40-40 and better, to have the greatest 40-40 season of all time. That sounds like an MVP's kind of credentials. We'll see if that's something that Ronald Acuna Jr. is going to be talking about at the end of the year or that the voters are going to have to put on that scale and weigh. And unfortunately, injury has also been part of the story here lately for Mookie Betts. He fouled the ball off his foot, is going to miss some time. It remains to be seen exactly how much. But after his absolutely historic and ridiculous month of August, Betts has found it a little bit tougher here in September, and unfortunately it looks like he's going to miss a little bit of time. That takes nothing away, though, from the fact that he's having an absolutely great season, has a chance to do some insane things as a leadoff hitter for the Los Angeles Dodgers. There are a lot of parallels here between these two players, and I love the commentary between the two of them out in the series in L.A. There's kind of a mutual admiration society, I think is what I called it earlier this week. 
And I think that that's very much true. But Ronald Acuna Jr. is not the only thing that's been going on for the Atlanta Braves in this past week and in this past homestand. The Braves ended up on the wrong side of losing two out of three to the St. Louis Cardinals, a team that did not meet the expectations that they had for this year. I think most people looked at the cards and expected them to be in the midst of the race, at the very least in the central and possibly in the wild card if maybe things didn't go their way. Well, they haven't been in either of those races throughout the course of this year. It's been a down year for a Cardinals team that I don't think it had a losing season in over two decades. So this is a whole new thing for them. Uh, but with the Cardinals coming to town, we got a chance to see a familiar face around Truist Park. It was truly nice this week to see Chip Carey in with the Cardinals. He is now their voice on Bally Sports, their television broadcast. Chip, of course, in two decades with the Atlanta Braves, was part of a lot of memorable moments for this club. I had a chance to catch up with Chip to reflect on you know, what it was like to make this big change. Of course, the storied legacy of the Carey family in broadcasting in Atlanta and Chicago and in St. Louis. All of those things as well. So I hope you'll stick around in the show and enjoy that with me as well. There was also, and I touched on the Dodgers here a few moments ago, but Los Angeles, it made a lot of baseball news here in the week that was. Shohei Otani's injury, the Tommy John surgery, if he decides to get it, that could keep him off the mound in 2024. Everybody's kind of wondering, I think at this point, when are we going to get some clarity on what exactly is going on with Otani and his camp? Because we know that this injury typically means you're going to have to go the surgery route to repair it if you want to continue your pitching career. And the last time I checked, the pitching career of Shohei Otani seems to be pretty marketable, pretty important, and it's also pretty special, to be quite honest. So I want to get some insight on that. Alden Gonzalez of ESPN will join me a little bit later in the show to talk about what's going on with Otani, how this could affect his free agency. Will it affect his free agency? I can't imagine that it won't. But we just don't know exactly what the extent of the injury is and the timetable to return to the mound for Otani. That's something that we have to know and that I'm sure teams need to know before that deal is done over the course of the winter. We'll also talk about that head-to-head battle between the Braves and the Dodgers that took place on the recent road trip, the MVP battle between Ron Lacuna Jr. and Mookie Betts, and the unfortunate situation involving Julio Urias, the Dodgers pitcher who was arrested this past week and is under investigation for domestic violence for the second time in his career. We'll touch on all of that as well. But when we come back, we're going to take a look at what happened for the Braves this past week. I got into the Ronald Acuna Jr. of it, but there are a lot of other players who have done some big things for Atlanta over the course of this season and a lot of storylines that we need to discuss for this week and coming down the stretch as Atlanta looks to polish off the National League East with a magic number of eight heading out on a road trip in which they could be NLE's champions, the first step toward their goal of getting to October and doing the things that they did back in 2021. We'll get into all of that with This Week in Braves Baseball. It's coming up next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Here we go now. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. These are the Kia Studios, and we are here on a Saturday night as the Braves continue to battle the Pittsburgh Pirates, close out a homestand, and then head out on a road trip that could bring them home as the division champs. The magic number is all the way down to eight as of the action on Saturday getting started, and the Braves are no doubt excited to check that first box towards October success. 
You look at this homestand, it's been kind of a mixed bag. Obviously, the first couple of games against the Cardinals were not what you wanted to see, particularly when you put it in the backdrop of maybe the most important regular season series. And hear me out. It's hard for a club with the best record in baseball, a club that's had a lead of about a dozen, 13, sometimes more games in their division. It's hard for that team to find series that define the season or to find a series that means more than some of the other ones. But the Braves and the Dodgers, that's a rivalry that has been built over the past five years. I talked about this on the show last week with Joe Davis, the voice of the Dodgers. This rivalry kind of came into being, or this latest iteration, in 2018. The Dodgers were a club that had done the World Series thing. They hadn't won it yet, but they had been deep into the playoffs. The Braves were emerging from a rebuild. In the midst of that, our friend Ronald Acuna Jr. had a moment against Walker Bueller, that grand slam at Truist Park. It's still one of the most exciting moments of the postseason that I can think of, and particularly because of who it was and what it was and what I felt like it could symbolize moving forward as the Braves and the Dodgers just seemed destined to clash in October. But this time, these two clubs were clashing here in the month of September, well before, but a nice preview of maybe the National League Championship Series. The Braves have managed to weather, I think, the injury storm a bit better than the Dodgers, whose rotation is now completely under siege. And there are also some other things we'll get into later that have created some controversy and some clouds atop and over the rotation for the L.A. Dodgers with Julio Urias. But putting that aside, finding a series for a team like the Braves that has been really with the best record in baseball for months now and among the best teams in baseball, even if you wanted to say, well, this club is a little bit hotter or this club right now looks like they're trending in that right direction. That's all fine. We play that fun and game stuff with power rankings all year long, but it was really at a fever pitch when the Braves rolled into Dodger stadium. You had Mookie Betts MVP case, which was full steam ahead. He was putting together a ridiculous month of August and All of a sudden, I guess folks maybe had kind of looked at what Ronald Acuna Jr. had done so consistently all year long and said, well, is he doing enough to hold off Mookie Betts? But then we got the head-to-head battle. And Mookie and Ronald, they provided some moments in that first game. But then as the series went on, it just kind of seemed like Ronald Acuna Jr. had stolen that show and had strengthened an MVP case that, in, in my mind and in my opinion, never really lost any steam. April, May, June, July, August, now into September, Ronald Acuna Jr. has simply posted up. All the respect in the world to Mookie Betts, who I do think is one of the best players in baseball, for what he did in the month of August. It was simply mind-boggling. But what Ronald was doing and what the Braves did at Dodger Stadium, something that they hadn't done in 11 years, win a series. Again, For a club that has the best record in baseball, it's hard to find particular series, particularly late on in the year, that could define your season. But if Atlanta had marched into L.A. and been swept or lost three out of four, you might have come out of that road trip feeling like, all right, well, yeah, this team's won a lot of games, but can they beat the good teams? Can they beat the good teams on the road? And I think the answer that we got to all of that, to make a long story short, is yes, the Braves can beat the good teams. They have a great winning percentage against winning teams. They have a great winning percentage against losing teams. It does not keep the Braves from losing some series from time to time, but this is a club that has been remarkably consistent. And other than about a three, maybe four-week lull in the month of July in that first week of September, 
you really can't find too many times in which the Braves have allowed an extended down period to start to cloud the picture of what they could accomplish this year. Every time questions seem to arise, the Braves find an answer. They win a series. Someone steps up, and it's not always Ronald Acuna Jr. I mean, we talk about Matt Olson each and every week on this show. He went through an 18-game homerless drought. The Braves' first baseman, who was still leading the majors in home runs for the majority of that time, Shohei Otani briefly overtook him. Olsen was sitting on 43 for 18 games. And then Matt Olsen, he homers in that finale against the Dodgers, a game that the Braves did lose. It was a close game, but they did lose that game. But you started to see that, hey, maybe Matt Olsen's figuring some stuff out. Maybe Matt Olsen hadn't really gotten altogether that far lost. Maybe he just had to, you know, circle the building a couple of times before coming back in and getting back to work, which is exactly what he's done on this homestand. He ended up homering in four consecutive games. Now, we're going to talk a lot about Andrew Jones later on in the show and the big ceremony for Andrew as his numbers retired at Truist Park this weekend. Those are always such a super cool opportunity to be around and be a part of because you don't really retire numbers too terribly often. I mean, even the Yankees, I mean, people joke about, well, they've retired a lot of numbers. It still doesn't happen that often. And maybe they happen in bunches in the case of the Yankees not too long ago. But when the Braves retired, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, Bobby Cox, Chipper Jones, which was the last one, by the way, you kind of wondered when the next one was going to be. Well, the answer is Andrew Jones. Well, Andrew Jones, who is being honored on Saturday night at Truist Park, holds the Braves' single-season franchise record with 51 home runs. Matt Olson, with 22 games left to play this year, is now four home runs away from that record. I know that Matt, by some very simple math, if he goes for another 18 games homerless and then homers in four straight games because there's 22 left, well, he would tie that record. I don't necessarily expect another 18-game drought, and I'm not expecting Matt Olson to homer each and every night, but he has shown that the power never goes away for too long, and he has put together one of the best offensive seasons by any player in Braves franchise history, and he's doing it in large part aside from the attention that Ronald Acuna Jr. has been claiming all year long by virtue of having an historically ridiculous season. So Olsen continuing to make a march towards history, and the Braves' offense in general continues to make that march towards history. Now as Atlanta heads into Saturday night's game against the Pittsburgh Pirates, this club has hit 272 home runs on the season. They are now just seven home runs away from the National League record, which was set by the Dodgers in 2019. And the 2019 season, as we know, with the home run balls that were flying out because of the altered state of the baseball, to put it politely and not get back into that whole thing, the next four teams that have hit more home runs than the Braves in a single season were all part of the 2019 campaign. Because you've got the L.A. Dodgers, who hold the National League record with 279 home runs. Then you've got the 2019 Astros, who hit 288 home runs. The New York Yankees of 2019 hit 306 but the Minnesota Twins hold the Major League single-season record with 307 home runs hit in that 2019 season. The Braves have 22 games left. They need 25 more homers to match it, 26 home runs to break it. It does feel like an attainable record for a club that's averaging about two home runs a night and did the kind of thing they did against the Cardinals the other day with five home runs in the series finale to win that game running away. Now, the Braves' home runs are a big part of their offense, but so are first-inning runs. They have now set a record for the franchise with three more first-inning runs against the Cardinals on Thursday. The Major League record is 160. The Braves have scored 129 of those. That's something else that could happen in a hurry because the Braves have been known to hang a crooked number really early. 
But the 1950 Red Sox hold that record with 160 of those, just one of the many that could fall at the hands of the Atlanta Braves. Now, how about some individual and collective home run history that the Braves could be trending on? You looked at the 30 home run hitters that the Braves have with Matt Olson, Ronald Acuna Jr., Austin Riley, Marcelo Zuna. You have Ozzie Albies one home run away as of the games of Friday. Then you have the Braves catchers, Travis Darneau and Sean Murphy, who have combined for over 30 home runs themselves. So that's another position group. But the Braves have 10 players in double-digit home runs. That's already a franchise record. Michael Harris II's next home run will be his 15th. If Travis Darno can hit four home runs in the final 22 games, that would give the Braves a major league record 10 players with 15 home runs or more. That's just a mind-boggling stat to think about, You know, having that kind of consistency up and down the lineup. And then you look at the fact they've already got seven 20 homer players. Orlando Arce is only three home runs away from giving them an eighth 20 homer player. They've got at least five guys that have 25 or more home runs. And when Ozzie Albies hits his next one, It'll be 530 home run hitters. It's truly the most powerful lineup I I can think of in in terms of Braves history or really any other franchise. It is hard to put this much power one through nine in your lineup, and it's one of the things that's a driving force for this Atlanta Braves team. Now, one of the most powerful bats in this lineup missed a couple of days. Austin Riley was not available for the Braves on Thursday in the series finale against the Cardinals. He was sick, had a 24-hour bug was what Brian Snitker was calling it. Riley even stayed home on Thursday, came back in on Friday, did his workouts, held out of the lineup for another day, back in the lineup, though, on Saturday. Austin Riley, just one of the many featured bats in this Braves lineup. Another guy that we've been talking about a lot lately has been Marcelo Zuna because his turnaround beginning at the start of May and rolling right on through September continues to bear fruit for the Atlanta Braves. He continues to hit big home runs find his way in on base and in the midst of all the rallies that the Braves have been putting together on a pretty much nightly basis. Ozuna's closing in on some personal history. He's got 33 home runs. That puts him just four shy of his career high as he hit 37 bombs for the Miami Marlins back in 2017. That could be another personal record that falls here in 2023 for an individual. Austin Riley is just eight home runs shy of his career high of 38 homers that he set last year. He's got 22 games to hit four more home runs. That doesn't feel like an if he's going to do it, but a when is he going to do it. And he could make a run at 40 homers in the final 22 games if he can get six more of those. And I can't bring up 40 homers without talking about Ronald Acuna Jr. He's got 35 long balls, including three in the last couple of games. He needs five more homers to get to 40, which, of course, would do the whole 40-40 thing that I talked about earlier. And he only needs six home runs to match his career high of 41 that he set back in his rookie season, his first full season, I should say, not rookie year, but the first full season in 2019 when he fell three stolen bases short of being in the 40-40 club. So a lot of things could be accomplished by a lot of different Braves players, and a lot of it has to do, of course, with home runs. That just kind of seems to be the rite of passage for this lineup And it's the kind of lineup that could power the Braves through October because this doesn't feel like anything close to what Atlanta had a year ago. A club that hit a lot of home runs, scored some runs, but struck out a lot. This is not that team. This is a very different team. So that's a look at what's been going on this week for the Braves, particularly for the Braves offense. And of course, that road trip out in Los Angeles in which the Braves took three out of four from the Dodgers, finished eight and two on that trip out west. That's about as good a road trip as I can think of and remember for the Atlanta Braves when you got to go through three cities and play 10 games out west. Things have a way of going awry. 
But for Atlanta on this trip, nothing really seemed to be going awry. We got a lot more to get to on today's show, though. And when we come back, and we'll get to my conversation with Chip Carey, who was back in town, the longtime voice of the Atlanta Braves, joined the St. Louis Cardinals last offseason, a homecoming of sorts, a lot of family ties that went into all of that. And I'll chat with Chip about some of his great memories from the Braves, a little bit of reflection on Andrew Jones, and I, I wonder if he's noticed just how good Ronald Acuna Jr. has been this year. I talked to him about that as well. That's coming up next as Chip Carey joins me right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue discussing the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. And we got a familiar face at Truist Park over the course of this homestand. As the St. Louis Cardinals rolled into town, it was a first trip back for the longtime voice of the Atlanta Braves, who is now the voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. He is Chip Carey. He joins me right now on the WadeFord.com hotline. Chip, it was great to see you this week out of the ballpark and uh, really thrilled to sit down and chat a little bit of baseball with you about the past, the present, and the future. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Grant. Good to see you, too. We had a fun time in Atlanta, good series for the Cardinals, so uh, that was a nice way to come back to the uh, great state of Georgia. Yeah, I would say that it was. The Cardinals handled their business in the first couple of games. The Braves were able to get one in the third contest, so two out of three goes to St. Louis, and now these two teams are done with one another. But, Chip, I know kind of one of the big stories of the offseason is the big change that was for you and in the booth for the Cardinals, and, of course, as the fallout was for the Atlanta Braves as well. As a guy who spent so much time in Atlanta, how nice was it to be able to come back, walk into the ballpark, and see those familiar faces again? That was the best part. Uh, you know, the people I worked with every day, the folks behind the scenes, you know, uh, Reggie at the press gate and Doug in the press room and Mike Smith, the security guard, the clubhouse guys, uh, the players themselves, all the people behind the scenes that fans don't necessarily get to spend an awful lot of time with uh, were the people that I spent most of my time with. And it was great to see them. It was great to be welcomed back with open arms and so many people said welcome home and the like, which made me feel good. Uh, I was really proud of what I was able to do there over my two decades with the Braves, really proud of what my family was able to do there. And, uh, you know, this was a chapter that I never envisioned writing or never envisioned coming up. But uh, if there was a place that uh, I would be willing to leave Atlanta for, it would be St. Louis. And uh, the Cardinals have been just as welcoming to me and the organization as well. So the transition's been fun. It's been seamless. The team hasn't played as well as we thought they would. But uh, at this stage of my life, at 58, to be able to make a transition like this and a change so drastically and pull it off so well, I'm very proud about that, and I'm very happy to be home, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny how baseball works because there's so many different threads that connect people. And you mentioned you kind of have a community at the ballpark when you go in each and every day. And that, I think, has to be one of the more fun things. But clearly, the Cary name is one that's known in St. Louis, one that's known in Chicago, one that's known here in Atlanta as well. I always enjoy walking into that press box and taking that immediate right, and there you see Skip Carey, Pete Van Weeren, and Ernie Johnson's the voices of Braves baseball over the formative years for a whole bunch of us, I'm sure yourself included. Yeah, of course. I mean, those were formative guys. Obviously, my dad was my hero growing up, but getting to work with all three of those guys was a real thrill for me in Atlanta. Uh, I don't understand why Don Sutton and Joe Simpson's uh, posters or mm -hmm. prints aren't up on the wall. They're Braves Hall of Famers and great broadcasters, too. But that's a discussion for another time. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the legacy and tradition there has always been very, very good. And I'm very proud of that I was able to continue carrying that torch forward and hand it off to Jeff Francoeur and Tom Glavin and Al Brandon, who's doing a great job, and uh, Ben Ingram on the radio side. Uh, we're a very close fraternity. 
And it all started with Ernie Johnson, who said, look, we're first among equals here. This is not a pecking order. This is all about us. It's not an individual thing. We're all voices of the Braves, and our job is to go out and call the games and have fun and support each other. And I'm really, really proud that I was able to do that, and the guys that have followed me are doing that too. Yeah, and calling a baseball game, I still think, is maybe the greatest job in the world. I'm sure you'd probably concur along those lines. And before we get to some of the other things for the Cardinals, for the Braves, things going on this year, and maybe a, another walk down memory lane, we talk about your dad and Pete Van Weeren and Ernie Johnson especially, and you know Joe Simpson and Don Sutton along there in that mix as well for some of the best years of Braves baseball that we're ever going to see. I really think it's a crying shame that the Hall of Fame has not found a place for some of the great voices of the Atlanta Braves, which of course is one of the great franchises in baseball history. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak as to what the Hall of Fame should or shouldn't do. I think uh, they are missing a great opportunity in this regard. Mm -hmm. When the broadcaster's wing started, you know, we only had radio and TV, and there was only one outlet. We didn't have all the national broadcasts. We didn't have all the different cable outlets, and there weren't as many announcers doing the games, and it was basically radio to start. But there are so many more methods and avenues for people to consume the product, and there's so many talented people that are being left aside, and they only put one in a year. I know that in talking with my dad and Ernie and Pete, and all three of them discussed it, not because they were trying to push their candidacies for Cooperstown, but they all felt that it wouldn't be right if Pete went in without Ernie and dad, or dad wouldn't want to go in without Pete and Ernie. And that's what made their partnership so good. They were three guys who were a unit. And later on, when Don and Joe came along and Billy Sample and Daryl Chaney and me, we all kind of uh, approached it that way. But you're right. Uh, those guys were all wonderful voices of the game. They're tremendous ambassadors of the product. And remember, the Braves product stunk for a lot of those seasons. Right. We all remember the 14 consecutive division championships, but from 1976 until the early 80s, and then from 85 on, it was pretty bleak around there. They made it entertaining and informative and fun, and it wasn't a controlled message from the top. And I think that's why people really um, love their broadcasts and why it resonated with so many people. They always told the truth, good, bad, or ugly. And they weren't micromanaged to death. But that said, I'd love to see the Hall of Fame recognize all three of them. And Dad's, uh, you know, one of the last conversations I had with my dad before he passed away, unfortunately, was if I can't go in while I'm alive, I'm not going to enjoy it. So the heck with it. I'm in the Braves (laughs) Hall of Fame. The fans in Atlanta treated me great. And that was his Hall of Fame. And he's content with that. But um, speaking selfishly and as uh, his biggest supporter, yeah, the, the, the Hall of Fame is is a far lesser place without those three guys and so many other talented people who I think are deserving and should be there. Absolutely. Co-sign on that. And hopefully those ranks will grow as the years go on, but hopefully we don't wait too many more years for it because I think the voices of your dad, of Pete Van Weeren, of Ernie Johnson, and of many others were the narrators of the summer. And of course, as the 90s came along, some stories were told in the fall that were pretty darn good as well. Chatting with Chip Carey here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the wadeford.com hotline on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Uh, Chip, this transition for you from Atlanta to St. Louis, you said it's been a seamless one, a fun one for you. A lot of people, when they think of your granddad, they think of the Chicago Cubs. But his story really began in St. Louis, and I think that's a pretty cool opportunity for you to follow in a legacy of your grandfather in another way, just like you did in Chicago. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. Uh, You know, all three of us, my dad, grandfather, and I were all born in St. Louis, um, all grew up there. Uh, Harry's house that he was born in is still standing. It's occupied. It's in a place called Lafayette Park. It's about three miles from Bush Stadium. My dad and Harry went to Webster Groves High School, which still stands. Imagine Mayberry and dad being 18 years old in 1957. (laughs) That's a little terrifying uh, to think about what took place. Um, But yeah, Harry started there in 1945. You know, back in those days, there were two or three stations that carried the games. They weren't exclusives. 
uh, multiple outlets did the home games and they would have reporters there and they would do the games. And Harry basically called the ownership of the Cardinals and said, I can do a better job than anybody. Hire me. And they did. Wow. And he went there. He was there from 1945 until 1969. He saw every bat of Stan Musial's career. Uh, he saw the Cardinals rise from, you know, humble beginnings to the powerhouse that they became in the 60s and then left after the 69 season, went to Oakland for a year, then to the White Sox and then to the Cubs. But it is incredibly gratifying to know that the 25 years he was there, he's still remembered, he's still thought of so highly. And people walk up to me all the time and say, you know, I used to listen to your grandfather when I was a little kid on the front porch in southern Illinois or in northern Indiana. And they tell me a story which keeps him alive. And uh, the same is true for my dad. I've run into some of his old classmates who come to the ball games now. Uh, and now I'm able to forge my own way of doing things and hopefully turning on people to Cardinals baseball so that 20 years from now, when hopefully my sons are in the major leagues, right. they'll say the same thing about me. But the family connection there is big. It's strong. Obviously, the Buck family is in, in, inextricably intertwined with mm-hmm. Cardinals history. Um, and so there's a, there's a comfort there and a, and, a, and a friendliness there. And knowing the culture from living there, I think, as you said, has made that transition a lot more seamless than perhaps it would have been for someone else. And again, such an incredible generational connection for your grandfather, for your father, for you. And now I would be remiss not to ask you about the next generation of carry broadcasters that are coming along and how their path is treating them thus far as they break in to the minor league yeah. ranks, which is where you cut your teeth. That's it. My uh, twin sons, uh, Stephen and Chris, are in Amarillo. They're in their second year with the Sod Poodles. That's the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, AA affiliate. They're doing great work down there, both on radio and TV. Uh, They're spreading their wings and doing it themselves. They work together, which is really unique. I think they're the first identical twins to work together in pro baseball uh, behind a microphone. So we just keep making stupid history all the way up and down uh, the genealogical tables. Uh, but they're terrific. They're great people. Um, they, they're excellent announcers, and I'm sure they're going to get looks from a lot of places hopefully soon because mom and dad would like them off the payroll, and they'd like <laughs> to get started too. Um, but there's another one too, my 14-year-old, soon-to-be 15-year-old son Tristan grabs the iPad and broadcasts the games too. And uh, there's nothing more gratifying to me as a father to see my sons finding their way and finding a vocation and a path that they enjoy and love and that it happens to be something I do is, is really, really great and humbling. But most of the credit goes to their mom because she's the one that has to hold down the fort when I'm off saying ground ball to second in Pittsburgh uh, for six months out of the year. So our family's been incredibly blessed. Baseball's given us everything. We understand that. We're very, very grateful for it. It's a very small part of who we are. But as far as our family and our love of the game and our hopefulness of passing this torch along and keeping the tradition going for as long as possible, uh, we feel like we're in a pretty good spot. I'm really, really proud of my guys, and I know they're proud of me too, which means the world. Absolutely, and and obviously a lot of folks out there are going to be following with a lot of interest there. you got a great team going, and it's nice to hear that they're out there finding their way as well and connecting baseball with the generations. That, I think, is the essence, one of the great things about this sport. Chatting with Chip Carey, the longtime voice of the Atlanta Braves, now with the St. Louis Cardinals. Just visited us through Truist Park this past week as the Braves came home after a very good road trip. Atlanta having a very good season. I think that Ronald Acuna Jr. has gotten the attention of the baseball world, but Chip, you already knew how good this guy was, but I think even those of us who watch Ronald Acuna on an everyday basis from the moment he came to the big leagues have to kind of sit back and shake our heads at the version we're seeing in 2023. It's the next level. Uh, When he came up, he was raw, and you could see the raw talent. He was just surviving on great baseball skill and instinct, but didn't really know how to think the game yet. 
And as that continued to progress through his career and he got more and more experience, he was on his way to superstardom. He blows out his knee in Miami. And last year, I think all of us were wondering, you know, what version of Ronald Acuna are we going to get? Will he ever get back to what he was? I think he expressed some self-doubt mm-hmm. and some concern about mm-hmm. that. I know he had mentioned that to his mom and, and was, was worried about, will I ever get back to where I was? Well, I think that experience, fatherhood, now marriage, and growing up and maturing, I'm sensing a different kind of Ronald. There is this unbelievable talent that he has control of now. As opposed to being a wild colt, he's more of a thoroughbred stallion, and he can go and let the reins out and roll when he wants to. When he doesn't need to, he doesn't have to because he's still in control of the game, which has slowed down so dramatically for him individually. Uh, the sky's the limit for him. He's one of the game's great stars. Uh, the Braves are lucky to have him. Our game is lucky to have a player as talented as he doing what he's doing because, Grant, these are unprecedented numbers he's putting up. Mm-hmm. And if he can stay healthy, there's no limitation to what he and the Braves team can do. But make no mistake, he's the catalyst at the top of the order. And when he gets going, as we saw against Adam Wainwright, with the first pitch, it's red alert. You make a mistake, you're down a run. And that changes the tone and tenor, not just of a game, but a series and perhaps a season. And it wouldn't surprise me to see him just do <laughs> get to get to 70 40 you know 75 45 it it wouldn't be out of the realm of imagination for me because the kid's that talented and I'm really happy for him not at all I think that he's been a guy that has shown us this year that there is another level to even his very impressive game and it's been exciting to watch that all play out let me close out with this because as you span some generations of Braves baseball I know you're familiar with the gentleman who's going to be getting his number retired over the weekend that of course is Andrew Jones I still think he's the best I've ever seen in the outfield I don't really know any way to quantify it, but the numbers certainly back it up. A long overdue honor and hopefully just another credential, if you will, on what is a pretty impressive case for Cooperstown admission for Andrew Jones. What are your favorite memories of watching Andrew patrol center field for the Braves for so many years? Well, the Spider-Man catch obviously is a highlight. I didn't didn't do that game, but I watched it. Um, Just watching him play center field and the... uh, the elegance with which he did it, it looked like he wasn't trying hard. He was. He just didn't have to look like he tried hard. He was so instinctive, and he played so great. He played as shallowly as anybody. I mean, Michael Harris does that too. And when the ball was over his head, you always felt like he was going to go get it. He made the guys around him better. He was a middle-of-the-lineup hitter, which made people better. He played every day, which made people better. And I think you make an excellent point, Grant, about uh, how the Hall of Fame consideration is going to change. We now have ways where we can measure the impact of defense. Mm -hmm. And the defensive prowess with which Andrew played, all you have to do, and I said this on our broadcast, is go ask John Smoltz, Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox, and all the other great Braves pitchers, even the not-so-great Braves pitchers, what Andrew Jones (laughs) meant to their careers, Uh and they'll tell you. Uh, how instrumental he was in that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see his number retired. It's long overdue. Uh, I hope that Cooperstown will continue to support him and his numbers will keep climbing as they did for Fred McGriff. And as I think we get more and more wisdom as to how important defense was and is to our game, guys like him who didn't have nice big round numbers in every category uh, will be rewarded. And once that happens for Andrew, there's another glaring omission that has to be taken care of. And that's, of course, Dale Murphy, who played center field so similarly. No doubt about it. I think that the baseball hall has already gotten a good one with Fred McGriff, who just went in this year. Andrew, Dale Murphy, and of course, I don't think I could go without having the voices of Braves baseball for so long with Pete Van Weeren, with your father, and of course, with Ernie Johnson getting a call to the hall at some point as well. Chip, I appreciate all your time. It's always great to catch up with you. I appreciate all the many ways you've supported me throughout my career, and I look forward to our paths crossing at some point, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. 
Look forward to it, Grant. Good luck the rest of the way. Have a great run in the playoffs, and we'll see you in spring training. Look forward to it. Always great to catch up with Chip Carey, who, of course, has a family legacy that spans generation after generation, and it was good to see him around the ballpark again this week. When we come back, we will turn our attention to what else is happening around the world of baseball. We'll take our trip around the big leagues, and it starts next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we embark on our number two from the Kia Studios on a Saturday evening. Getting ready for the Atlanta Braves to have a very big night at Truist Park. No, it's not because the Pittsburgh Pirates are in town. It's because it's a number retirement night. Andrew Jones, number 25, is going to take its rightful place along that facade at Truist Park down the left field line. They've already had the number up there. It's been covered for the entirety of this homestand. Should be pretty fun to watch that get unveiled, see who among Andrew's teammates are there to watch him receive this honor. And, of course, for Andrew, I think this is another step towards his Hall of Fame case because when a team retires your number, that would mean they hold you in pretty high esteem. And I don't know that there is a center fielder in baseball history who should be held in a higher esteem defensively than Andrew Jones. And he's got the 10 gold gloves to prove it. But we'll talk a lot about that as we go on and reflect on the career of Andrew Jones a little bit later. As for this week in baseball, like so many weeks in baseball, every week in baseball, there were a lot of different stories. I'm going to have Alvin Gonzalez of ESPN join me to talk about the Shohei Otani fallout from the injury to the free agency. And because Alden's out in L.A. and has gotten a chance to watch the Dodgers, he got a bird's-eye view of the battle between the Braves and the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium on this recent road trip, and more specifically the battle between Ronald Acuna Jr. and Mookie Betts for MVP. Now, down here around Atlanta, we don't really feel like it's much of a battle. The continued greatness of Ronald Acuna Jr. has been on display since day one, and he's doing some history-making things. So I'll get Alden's take on that, and of course we'll have to talk about the Julio Urias news, which was troubling to say the least. All of that's coming up here on the show. But right now, let's take a look at some of the biggest stories that I saw from the week that was. And we'll start in Washington, D.C., where on Thursday there was a report in The Athletic, a developing story. Steven Strasburg was supposed to have a retirement press conference happening this weekend on Saturday night, no less. Then all of a sudden there was the news that that press conference had apparently been canceled. The plan was to honor him and perhaps at some point retire his number, but the Nationals changed course. That's according to Britt Giroli of The Athletic. Now, this story, as you might imagine, took on a life of its own. According to the Washington Post, this was something that the two sides had been discussing, but since the start of the week, they hadn't really been able to hammer out all of the details of the retirement terms for Steven Strasburg, who is still under contract for an awful lot of money, so it would appear that they were going to push this official announcement until they could come to an agreement. Because if Strasburg just outright retires, well, he would forfeit the remainder of that salary, and I'm not sure that that is the plan. But as far as pitching again, it seems that retirement is the only course of action for Steven Strasburg. Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post said to clarify, the Nationals were only planning to hold a press conference on Saturday. Any other honors would have happened down the line. There have been discussions about retiring his number next season, according to multiple people within the organization. Well, as all of this hit the news cycle, clearly the team was not thrilled to have to discuss this in public. And Mark Lerner, who is the Washington Nationals' principal owner, put out a public statement which read, and I quote, Steven Strasburg is and will always be an important part of the Washington Nationals franchise. We support him in any decision he makes and will ensure that he receives what is due to him. It is regrettable that private discussions have been made public through anonymous sources attempting to negotiate through the media. 
While we have been following the process required by the collective bargaining agreement, behind-the-scenes preparations for a press conference had begun internally. However, no such event was ever confirmed by the team or promoted publicly. It's unfortunate that external leaks in the press have mischaracterized these events. It is our hope that ongoing conversations remain private out of respect for the individuals involved. Until then, we look forward to seeing Stephen when we report to spring training. I don't know if this is the version of, in wrestling, what they call keeping kayfabe alive and just keeping up the appearance that Steven Strasburg is maybe not retiring or just that not all the I's have been dotted and T's have been crossed, all of those kinds of things. But it was certainly a peculiar close to what otherwise is exactly what I would expect from ownership that's unhappy to see that whatever it is that they were trying to hammer out became a public affair before they could finalize things and have this press conference for Steven Strasburg. Now, whether or not he gets his number retired is a completely different question. I think that as far as Washington Nationals history goes, Ryan Zimmerman is widely regarded to be the guy. But Stephen Strasburg is a World Series MVP who had a very storied career. And it will always kind of be a what if as well. Because not only did he have some great success, but you'll kind of wonder, and this retirement brings that all home, what could Stephen Strasburg have become? What could he have accomplished without the injuries? Either way, the Nationals decided to break him off a pretty serious payday after that World Series, and they still owe him a fairly big amount of that contract. After the 2019 season when the Nationals won the World Series, Strasburg re-signed with the club a seven-year, $245 million deal, and he is still owed $105 million with deferred payments that would carry him all the way through 2029. $105 million sounds like a sum of money that both Strasburg and the Nationals would like to negotiate out. There has been no indication whatsoever that Steven Strasburg is inclined to continue pitching, that news came out a couple of months ago. And again, the injuries that he has dealt with and the fact that he has not been able to do much over the course of that seven-year contract that he signed, it's not surprising that retirement is the next step for Steven Strasburg. But I don't think the Nationals are enjoying the conclusion of his career playing out in the press. Now, speaking of bizarre situations involving the 2019 Washington Nationals, Anthony Rendon, well, he did not resign with Washington. Instead, he took his talents out to Los Angeles and signed with the Angels, which at the time seemed like it might be one of those free agent moves that might stem the tide for a team that, as we've talked about a lot and we'll talk about a little bit later with Alden Gonzalez, uh, the Angels haven't exactly figured it out, and now they're looking at Shohei Otani heading out into free agency. That conversation can wait, but Anthony Rendon has had several injury-filled seasons, has not lived up to his seven-year $245 million contract, and if that number sounds familiar, well, that's exactly what Steven Strasburg got as well. Rendon has not played in two months, and he talked to a reporter who was trying to get an update on his condition this past week, a possible timetable for whether or not he's going to play again before the 2023 season is over. And the response from Rendon to the reporter was, no habla inglés today. Rendon then put on a hoodie, left the clubhouse, and Sam Blum of The Athletic, well, he laid it all out there. Anthony Rendon, when asked for the injury update, gave him a response in Spanish and then marched on out. That comment, I think, upset a lot of fans because some are you know, mad about the fact that maybe that's not a joke that you need to be making these days. But Rendon, it's not a good look either way because he's been on the 60-day IL with an injured shin. Reporters don't ask just inside the clubhouse and behind the curtain. They don't ask for an update on a player's injury rehab every single day. But every now and again, every week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe every month, if you know what the timetable for the injury is, you try to get that update. Rendon, though, does not want to talk about that. Since the start of the 2021 season, Rendon has hit 13 total home runs and played in just 148 games over the last three years. So 
A lot of people are wondering when and if he's going to get back on the field, though it would seem like the ship for Rendon's career might be sailing as far as being a productive member of this Angels team. But apparently this behavior and this run-in with Sam Blum is just the latest in a long line of them because you can go back through Twitter and read some of the interactions that Anthony Rendon has had since landing on the injured list. Back at the start of August, he said that since he's on the quote-unquote dead list, he doesn't have to do any interviews and therefore doesn't have to provide any updates. A couple of days later, he said that he would come back out and update his health and did not return. So then reporters were kind of left in limbo. Asked how his wrist was way back in June, Rendon told Sam Blum, I have two, and then held them up as he walked out of the clubhouse. This is just pattern behavior. Asked how he was feeling while dealing with his shin injury, he said, I'm not here, and then left the clubhouse. So this is just a sordid affair between Rendon and the media out in Los Angeles, and as you might imagine, across social media, fans and media types alike were sounding off on what has become a pretty embarrassing look for a veteran player who should honestly know better. I know the injuries are frustrating, but this is the kind of thing that's not going to get anybody anywhere. Let's go down to Houston where the Astros were dealing with a bit of a problem between manager Dusty Baker and outfielder Chas McCormick, who has been one of the Astros' best players for the last month or two at the very least, and what would appear like an important part of the winning that they plan on doing as they move forward this year. There was a report in The Athletic on Thursday that McCormick was losing playing time because he has frustrated some members of the Astros organization, according to multiple sources who spoke to The Athletic. Those sources were indicating that that friction could be between Baker and McCormick because the manager is frustrated with the outfielder's playing weight being above what his listed weight is, which is the difference of about 12 pounds. Now, Dusty Baker, meanwhile, was not happy that that report made it public, and before the game on Friday... He provided a little bit of clarity on what this situation is all about. As far as me not liking Chaz, I don't understand where that's coming from at all. And uh, it's caused kind of storm out there, which is unnecessary. And as far as his weight is concerned, if I had something against him with his weight, and you can ask him, I wouldn't bring him banana pudding every once a week. I appreciate it people will stop trying to help me manage because I think I know what I'm doing. And I take care of my players the same way they take care of me. And McCormick is hitting 289 with 20 home runs and 63 runs knocked in and the OPS near 900 as the Astros and Padres battled out this weekend. McCormick discussed this on Wednesday as to whether or not his weight was a concern. He says he can do more being 220 pounds, usual weight around 215. And when he was a little bit lighter than that, he felt like it was too light, maybe not strong enough, whatever the case was. But McCormick handled it extremely professionally, saying that, hey, the lineup belongs to the manager. Everything is status quo for him, and winning is the most important thing. So it would sound like from both parties, they're good. And as the saying goes, winning cures a lot of ills. And maybe that banana pudding helps. I don't know. Meanwhile, the Tampa Bay Rays and starting pitcher Zach Eflin had a very interesting post-game press conference following a start against the Boston Red Sox this past week as he was answering questions, as pitchers always do, about what went right, what went wrong, how they were feeling out there, the usual stuff. But Zach Eflin's answer was anything but usual. Take a listen to this. How would you kind of assess that outing? Um, it's a great question, honestly. I've been thinking a lot about it. I think the best way to describe it would be I, I felt like butt naked stranded on an island somewhere in the middle of the ocean. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing tonight. I could not figure out my mechanics. Um, I couldn't get ahead of guys. I, I mean, I, I drilled Wong with an OO pitch. I walked Cassis 
uh, in four straight balls. I almost hit Turner in the face. And then to top it all off, I thought I punched Devers out in a 3-1 count, and I got drilled in the shoulder. So I had no idea where I was out there. Eflin was definitely battling with himself out on the mound, had some trouble with his mechanics. His control was not where he wanted it to be. Hitting batters, walking batters on four pitches, nearly hitting another in the face. Just not what you want when you're out there. But uh, for his part, he was able to get through the five innings and help the Rays pick up an 8-6 win over the Red Sox. It took 10 innings to get there, but all's well that ends well. Eflin did strike out seven batters across his five frames as well. Just effectively wild might be the best thing to call it. A couple of other things before we get out of here. Stories that I just thought kind of were interesting from this past week. The Oakland Athletics won a baseball game on Wednesday. That may not sound like much of a story because the Athletics, well, they don't do a lot of winning, and even when they do, it's typically not too noteworthy. But their victory on Wednesday against Toronto, their 5-2 win, that was their 43rd of the year. And that means that a time-honored baseball record is going to remain intact because the Oakland Athletics can now only mathematically lose 119 games this year. No, they cannot surpass the 1962 New York Mets for most losses in a season, which a little bit earlier this year felt like it was most definitely in play. The Athletics were able to ensure that they would not be taking home that dubious distinction as the losingest team in Major League Baseball history, as they have won five of the first seven games this month, including win number 43 of the year, which mathematically saves their season from that kind of infamy. Let's wrap up with this one because I think even though this is radio and I can't show you the images that if you have been online in the last 48 hours, you probably got a good look at this. It also happened on Wednesday when the Athletics were busy winning a baseball game against the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, the Angels, they were taking their team photo. That's just something the Braves did this week, and I'll get to that in a moment. But Shohei Otani, the two-way superstar and the man who we're going to talk a lot about in the next segment of this very show, he was unavailable for this team photograph, so... The Angels used a stand-in, and that means that Otani will be photoshopped over said player when this photo is released and utilized in whatever ways that it is. Instead of Otani taking part in this exciting day, which I can promise you is not altogether that exciting, but nonetheless, it's a rite of passage to take a photo, team photo, at the end of the year. There was a man wearing an Otani jersey who took part in the Angels team photo and with reporters everywhere. As you can imagine, this caught the eye of several of them, and it went viral, which I think if the Angels were looking for wins this year, maybe going viral is the biggest win. But not having Otani there was a bit strange, considering that Anthony Rendon, who we talked about a few minutes ago, is not exactly the happiest camper. He was there for photo day. And even Mike Trout, who's on the injured list, also there for the team photo. Instead, a man standing in for Otani, in which the L.A. press is believing to be a team employee, was immediately escorted off the field through the bullpen exit after the photo shoot, and that was the end of that. The photo, though, is online. It'll live forever. You can check that out. Which brings me to the Braves team photo, because Austin Riley was not at the ballpark when the Braves did theirs on Thursday. Does that mean there was an Austin Riley body double that nobody saw? Will he be photoshopped into the Braves team photo? Well, we'll have to find out if we ever see a team photo of the 2023 Braves. We'll look into that and let you know what we find. Coming up next on the show, though, we're going to get back into the Shohei Otani of it all as Alden Gonzalez of ESPN joins me here on the show. We will talk about the injury to Otani, what that means to his free agency, and quite a few more stories from baseball around the Los Angeles area. And it comes your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Talking Braves, 
and beyond. Baseball with From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we continue our trip around the big leagues. We're going to make a stop out in Los Angeles where a special guest is going to help me to kind of dissect some of the big news we've seen coming out of L.A. because goodness knows there were a lot of different types of stories making headlines this week. I'm thrilled to be joined by Alden Gonzalez of ESPN. He joins me right now via the WadeFord.com hotline. Alden, we'll get into the Shohei Otani business and so much more, but first and foremost, I appreciate you making some time for me today. Thank you, Grant. Happy to be on with you. Well, uh, Shohei Otani has set the attention of the baseball world seemingly every time he comes to the plate or every time he takes the mound. And we've all been watching the Otani show for quite a few years now. And I'll get into his free agency in just a bit. But how much does this injury news change the dynamics of his career? And how is his camp viewing this UCL tear and the setback it creates? Well, I'll answer the second question first. His camp, at least in his public comments, is trying to be as optimistic as possible. We heard from his agent, uh, Nez Bellello, earlier this week. And understandably, because he is talking for his client and his client is obviously going to be a highly anticipated free agent, he was painting as optimistic a picture as possible with mm-hmm. his uh, owner collateral ligament and that tear, saying that it took place in a different spot than his initial tear that necessitated Tommy John surgery. He said he's going to be a two-way player again. He said, which was the most surprising thing to me, that he's going to be ready to hit on opening day. Wow. Um, and that might end up being the case, but... You know, I, I've spoken to several doctors on this issue, and, you know, one thing that they've all told me is it doesn't really matter where the tear is compared to the other tear. And Nez Bellello, his agent, said that the most recent tear is on the lowest extremity of the UCL, whereas the previous one was on the highest extremity. A tear is a tear, and it needs to be repaired in some way, whether it's stem cell PRP, a route that Shohei Otani took before, didn't work, or it's Tommy John surgery. Or it's a relatively new internal bracing procedure mm-hmm. that has worked for some other athlete. But some procedure is going to have to be done. And having said that, to answer your first question in terms of how it impacts the dynamic of Shohei Otani, I don't think for as great an athlete as Shohei Otani is, as for as precedent-breaking as he's been, mm-hmm. I mean, it's fair to question if we'll ever see him do what he's done ever again. Um, I wouldn't put it past him. I know he wants to be a two-way player, but... It's hard to recover from a second Tommy John surgery. I mean, the day that I'm talking about this is the same day that the Dodgers announced that Walker Buehler is not going to make it back before the end of the season. He also is coming back from the second Tommy John surgery. He does not try to hit at the same time uh-huh. while doing this. So it's going to be really tricky. And this is why we've always said, while Shohei Otani was doing the incredible things that he has done over these last three seasons, and I'm not saying it's over, but – Enjoy it while it lasts. This is incredibly rare. It is incredibly difficult to do. This is such a fragile thing to do at this level. And I hope I am wrong about this. But I do wonder if we might have seen the end of an incredible two-way player. Time will tell. Yeah, we're going to find out. But you don't get a nickname like the Unicorn without doing things that people may not have imagined were possible before. However, we know that the injury trail and we know what a tear in the UCL typically means. And for Otani and his camp, they're going to have to navigate that. And particularly for a guy who wants to be on the mound, he's going to have to get that all figured out and dealt with. Uh, Otani's free agency has been one of the biggest stories for years because that countdown has now moved from the background when he first came to the Angels to the forefront with each and every passing year. The Angels decided to hold on to him, not trade him at the deadline. I think we've seen that that deadline maneuvering by Los Angeles did not exactly work out the way that they wanted to. But 
What does this process look like now in free agency with the expectation that he won't be on the mound in 2024, assuming that is the case? I think it's going to be a really interesting process now because this next contract for Shohei Otani could take a lot of different forms based on what happened. Mm -hmm. I think the most likely route now, and this is just an educated guess because it depends on who's bidding, what the offers are, what Shohei Otani is comfortable with. And to be clear, we haven't heard from Shohei Otani on this issue. We haven't heard from him at all in weeks at this point. Uh, And probably won't hear from him again, at least until the end of the regular season. But my understanding is that his next contractor, my guess is that he's going to be paid salary that's probably in line with some of the best position players in the sport because uh-huh. that's what Shohei Otani is. He's True. one of the best hitters in the game. He still is a threat to steal bases. Nobody doubts that he's a good enough athlete to eventually be an outfielder if he wants to be, okay? I'm not saying he will be. So I don't think it's far-fetched that in guaranteed money, and I'm talking like kind of in NFL terms now, uh, he'd be paid like an Aaron Judge. And actually, Shohei Otani would be slightly younger as a free agent than Aaron Judge was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the incentives in that contract will be based on what he could potentially do as a pitcher. So game started, innings pitched, things like that. I think those will be the non-guaranteed portion of his contract because that's the aspect that's up in the air. He's going to hit next year. He plans on hitting next year. He's going to hit for the foreseeable future. You could have a tear in your UCL and keep hitting. He has demonstrated that mm-hmm. throughout his career. The eternity is pitching. That's where the incentives come. And then I think on top of that, I would be interested to see if there's an opt-out for Shohei Otani. I think what would make sense in a situation like his is to have an opt-out after year two. So what ends up happening there is if you have Tommy John surgery, you spend all of 2024 recovering from Tommy John surgery, try to come back as a pitcher in 2025. If that goes really well, and he wants to go back into the free agent market, which he would do so at 31, Mm -hmm. he can do that and try to get even more money. If it doesn't go as well and he wants the security of his current deal, he could just stay on his current deal. I think if I were a betting man, I would bet on a contract in that sort of structure. It should be very interesting to see exactly how this contract is structured, particularly with the injury news. And as you just laid out, the possibility that you could set up a very nice, I guess, floor, if you will, with a ceiling that could rise much higher. And I think we expected Shohei Otani's deal to be record-breaking had he made it to free agency healthy, but now there's a little bit of a cloud hanging over that, of course. Chatting with Alden Gonzalez of ESPN here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the waitfor.com hotline. One other free agent question, I guess, about Otani is, you know, the derby for his services. What do you expect that to look like in terms of the number of teams that should be in the mix? Do you think that this injury changes that interest out there? Or do you think that other clubs are still going to view this as the opportunity to get one of the best players in the game? And as you pointed out, he's a difference maker at the plate. Then they may be able to get something on the mound from him. And it could also be pretty special as we've seen. I don't think there's any doubt that it's going to impact it. I don't think there's any doubt that the list of suitors will be shorter. Um, by how much? I don't know. But there's a great uncertainty now with Shohei Otani. And that has no doubt, is no doubt going to have an impact on his free agency. I still think the big market teams are going to be interested. I think the uh, likely suitors that everybody keeps mentioning are going to be in the mix, whether it's obviously the Angels, they want to bring him back. But the Dodgers or the Mariners or the Giants or the Padres or the Mets, the Yankees maybe, um, teams like that. I think those teams are still going to be interested. I think before this happened, 
I was very curious to see how this played out because one thing that I was anticipating was that it was going to be really difficult this offseason to be able to weed out the really serious uh, bidders for Shohei Otani from the ones who are just sort of out there for basically PR with their fans. Because uh-huh. it was to a point where Shohei Otani is such a unique baseball player that any team that doesn't try to get him would have probably gotten some backlash from fans. So mm-hmm. I think we were going to see a lot of kind of token offers, right, from owners who wanted to at least give out the perception that they were trying to get Shohei Otani. I think that calculus has changed a little bit now because of that uncertainty. But look, make no mistake about it. Shohei Otani is still possibly the most unique free agent in baseball history. There's going to be a lot of suitors. He's still incredibly marketable. He still brings a lot of revenue to teams because of that. He's able to widen a team's reach, their brand, because of how popular he is on the other side of the world. And there's the intrigue of the possibility that he could continue to be a two-way player as soon as 2025, and who knows what happens, maybe even 2024. I doubt that part, but still. Um, it's still going to be a lot of interest. Yeah, that part seems to be the only question. But what is unquestioned is that what Shohei Otani has done the past handful of years, including up until his injury here in 2023, is the kind of thing we've never seen in the modern game. And when you're on a list where basically your only other peer is Babe Ruth, I would say that you've uh, probably accomplished something pretty good in the world of baseball and that there should be a lot of clubs that are out there clamoring for his services. Alden, the news around Los Angeles baseball, unfortunately, is not just about the Otani situation. It's not just about uh, the Dodgers have heated up and really started to make some moves out west. The Dodgers and Braves just finished up a head-to-head battle that had all kinds of intrigue between two of the best clubs in baseball and two of the best players, maybe more than just two of the best players out on the field. Let me ask you just for a moment, and we all saw it, Ron Lacuna Jr. and Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts and Ron Lacuna Jr., can you remember an MVP race maybe outside of the Judge Otani that we saw? what in not too recent memory that has been as interesting perhaps as the National League MVP race here in 2023. You know, the last one that I remember like this was Mike Trout versus Miguel Cabrera Mm -hmm. and Mike Trout having an incredible either rookie season or second year, Miguel Cabrera chasing and ultimately winning the triple crown. That was one of the most captivating MVP races that I've ever covered. Uh, This was close. And I mean, look, you're really close to uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. there in, uh, in Georgia and, Look, Ronald Acuna Jr. has been doing this all year. Mookie Betts is coming off a historic month of August, yep. and he's made it really interesting. And at the end of August, he was actually the war leader uh, in the National League by a pretty good margin. But Ronald Acuna Jr. has been so consistent all year long, doing it with power, doing it with his legs, obviously. I know the defensive metrics don't grade him out as a good right fielder. I've watched him play enough. He's a dynamic right fielder who can impact the game with his glove. He can impact it with his arm. And Mookie Betts, I mean, does everything well. Uh, he doesn't steal bases like Ronald Acuna Jr., but he's brought value on the bases mm-hmm. in his own way. He's a gold glove right fielder who's been helping the Dodgers at shortstop and second base. That kind of thing is unheard of. Uh, and he and Freddie Freeman, who also you also know well, of course, yep. um, they're the reason why this very flawed Dodgers team is going to cruise to get another division title, and even with other questions in their starting rotation, they look like one of the best teams in the National League. I think this race is going to come down to the very end. Freddie Freeman and Matt Olson might have their say as well, but I think this is very clearly a two-man race between Acuna and Betts, and I think it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, it's been very exciting to watch both of them. It was fun to see all four of those players you mentioned on the field with Betts and Freeman kind of in their tag team, and then you've got Ronald Acuna Jr. and Matt Olson 
Uh, I want to wrap up with this because there was some unfortunate news for the Dodgers, of course, this week with Julio Urias and what he's dealing with. His off-field issues have been documented in the past. Now this latest incident, arrest, and allegations of domestic violence that he's dealing with and that obviously Major League Baseball is looking into. Where does this investigation stand? I know it's going to take quite a while to parse through all of this. And how does this impact the Dodgers and perhaps Urias's future in baseball? Because as we know, this is the kind of thing that as baseball has looked into it and as we saw with Trevor Bauer, the sport takes very, very seriously. Yeah, look, this is the least important aspect of this, but we'll start here. And it definitely impacts the Dodgers because uh, I, I would be, me and basically everybody else, would be incredibly shocked if Julio Urias were pitching this season. If for no other reason than the fact that what we've seen in the past with these incidents, Trevor Bauer most recently and Wander Franco right now, Mm-hmm. Uh, is that these things take a lot of time. And Major League Baseball is not going to make a decision on a suspension in a situation like this until it talks to Julio Rios. And I don't know when they're going to be able to talk to Julio Rios because this is also being investigated by police here in Los Angeles. And then my understanding is that this is going to get turned over to the district attorney's office in the near future. So this is a long process. My expectation would be that Julio Urias is going to be on administrative leave at least until the end of the season. And then we'll see what happens over the offseason. Um, the Dodgers starting pitching, is, huge questions around that with Tony Gonsolin and Dustin May already out for the year. Walker Buehler is not going to come back, as I mentioned earlier. Clayton Kershaw's pitching through shoulder issues. Lance Lynn has struggled. Huge questions there. But, you know, more importantly is what took place the um, alleged victim involved in this situation. And just what an unfortunate situation for baseball. Again, that incidents like this continue to cloud over the sport. And what's been in such a thrilling, exciting season, Julio Rios was arrested on Sunday for felony charges of domestic violence. Um, we need to let the legal process play out here. But just from the outside, he's already been suspended once under the domestic violence policy. If he is suspended again, he would be the first player ever to be suspended twice under the domestic violence policy. And um, we reported that there's actually been video of the incident. We haven't seen the incident. We don't know what happened. But there has been video of the incident that is in possession of the police department that is investigating this incident. So we got to let this play out. We don't know what happened. We don't know the details surrounding all of this. But it's not great. It's not a great look, uh, and it's just you hate to see stuff like this happen. No, incredibly unfortunate, a cloud that does kind of hang over what is otherwise a baseball season coming down to a very exciting finish, and there will be great things happening on the field, but with an eye to things that affect us off the field and beyond just what happens on a baseball diamond, this is definitely an unfortunate thing, and uh, the process will continue to play out. The story will continue to develop, and of course, uh, we'll continue to discuss that and keep our eyes on all of that. Alden, I really appreciate all of your time. Uh, anything that you would like to plug or anything that you would like to uh, put out there so that folks know where to connect with you and how to follow your great work with ESPN. Yeah, you can read me on ESPN. You can watch me on ESPN and you can follow me on Twitter at Alden underscore Gonzalez. I appreciate the time, Grant. He is Alden Gonzalez of ESPN. Appreciate his time. When we come back here on From the Diamond, we'll turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves. Take a look at one of the big moments happening this weekend as Andrew Jones' numbers retired at Truist Park tonight as the Braves and Pirates are doing battle this weekend. We'll get into that next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we wrap up this week's edition of the show and a really special night happening at Truist Park. And I think it's always fun to, you know, take that walk down memory lane. Did a little bit earlier with Chip Carey right here on this show, just kind of talking about the legacy of the Atlanta Braves. And for Chip, it's a legacy in the broadcast field. Legacy on the field, though, we know a thing or two about all of that. The Braves certainly had a Hall of Fame pedigree throughout the course of the 1990s. And one man who could be joining Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, Jones, McGriff, and Bobby Cox in Cooperstown could be Andrew Jones. He's already in the Braves Hall of Fame, but on Saturday night, just a, a wonderful opportunity to honor a career that was one of the best of the Atlanta Braves of that era, which still, I think you can argue, was the best era of Atlanta Braves baseball ever, with all due respect to what's currently going on for this club, which is still playing out right in front of our eyes. Andrew Jones exploded onto the scene in 1996 at the age of 19. He came up to help the Braves in the outfield, and he came up huge in the World Series. I don't know that there is a better welcome to baseball moment than two home runs in the World Series as a 19-year-old. The youngest player ever to do that, that right there is stealing the spotlight. Now, the 1996 World Series did not work out for the Atlanta Braves, as we all know. But the career of Andrew Jones, I feel like that was just kind of the launching point. The point at which you knew that this kid was special. He was going to have a part to play in whatever this club was going to do moving forward. And what part did Andrew Jones play? How about gold glove center fielder 10 times over, 400 plus home runs. And for now, the franchise record with 51 home runs in a single season. That is something Matt Olson has been chipping away at, especially this past week as he moves to within four of that heading into Saturday night's action against Pittsburgh. But the career of Andrew Jones and, and the legacy of Andrew Jones is built in large part on the gold glove pedigree that I just mentioned. I would challenge you because I have not seen it yet and I may never see it to find a center fielder who did things with the ease and the consistency at which Andrew Jones played that position. You find a lot of great fielders and a lot of great plays. We see them on a nightly basis across Major League Baseball because there are some super talented players out there and they do some incredibly crazy things. But to watch Andrew Jones, there was this quiet consistency that it had the highlight reel plays, but it also had just a degree of certainty knowing that if the ball was hit in the air to center field and it could be caught on the run, coming in, going back, in the gap, standing, diving, running, whatever the case was, if Andrew Jones couldn't make that catch, that ball couldn't be caught. And that, I think, you just don't find that kind of certainty with too many other fielders at any position. That's what made Andrew Jones special. Coming up at such a young age, being able to have the career that he did, I know it didn't close out with the way that he would have liked it to. Most certainly, the trip to Los Angeles was a disastrous season for him. He ended up being more of a fourth, fifth outfielder DH type for the remainder of his career and ended up playing overseas as well. But his time with the Atlanta Braves and what he accomplished during that decade was more than enough to build not just the foundation of a Hall of Fame case, but you knew you were watching greatness. And he was doing it for one of the best teams in baseball. And he wasn't doing it for a year or two. He did it for a decade. I, I think that that, as far as the semantics of the Hall of Fame is concerned, is something that we continue to wrestle with and to argue with. But in regard to everything that has come along in the last 15 or 20 years with respect to analytics and being able to really find the true value of a player, if Andrew Jones was playing today, 
I don't feel like he would be as overlooked. I feel like he would be at the center of the conversation for best fielders ever in the game of baseball, especially with the numbers to back it up. But if he had a career's worth of that, if they were tracking Andrew Jones from 1996 forward, using all of the advanced metrics, stat cast, and all the other things that go with it, Andrew Jones would be at the top of the list of elite baseball players. And while he was a multiple-time All-Star, a guy that went, played in the World Series and that helped the Braves do a lot of winning with his play out in center field, I don't think he ever took center stage for this team because it was more about the collective than the individuals. But now that the Braves have decided to retire Andrew Jones' number, I thought it was a great time to reflect and catch up with a couple of guys that saw him from a very young age and then a little bit later as the established center fielder, the Andrew Jones that I think we all look back on and remember so well, the man who'd been piling up the gold gloves. The first guy I had the chance to chat with is former Braves catcher Eddie Perez. He, of course, is on Brian Snitker's coaching staff these days, and he came up through the Atlanta system and was a part of those 90s teams as well. And when Andrew Jones showed up, it just seemed like it was the beginning of something special. And I'll let Eddie Perez tell you all about that. i never forget what Chipper says. Chipper told me, he said, Eddie, it's a kid down there has some unbelievable talent. And I was like, who? And then he said, Andrew Jones. I said, well, he's American. They go, no, 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 he's, he's Latin. He's, uh, he's from Curacao. I said, yeah. So I went and checked it out, and I was like, oh, wow. But... Uh, we knew that we got somebody down there in the minor league that can play, and yeah. we just waiting for him to come up here. I, I wasn't expecting to see him so early, but you know, we, I remember Philadelphia was his first game, yeah. and I was waiting for him in the lobby. And uh, I guess we were flying the next day, and I told him because I saw him in shorts. I said, "What are you doing in shorts?" <laughs> and he goes, "That's all I got." You know, well, you know, we're flying tomorrow, and we need to wear suits. And he goes, "Really?" So I, I took it to my room and he wore one of my suit. Okay. It, it wasn't the same side, but it fit well for him. And I never saw that suit back anyway, but uh, he wore it that day. And that's another great thing about baseball is those kinds of stories. Because as Eddie met Andrew, the 19-year-old that didn't even know how to dress going on the team charter, that was going to change as he established himself at the big league level. And I hope that Eddie Perez gets a suit out of it at some point because that's a pretty important role to play. Uh, putting that aside, though, when you think about what we have now in today's baseball, where we know about all these prospects from the pre-draft hype to the draft coverage itself to all the minor league coverage, that didn't exist when Andrew Jones was coming through the minor leagues. Now, if you go back through, say, Baseball America, and you look at the work that they've done over the years, over the decades now, Andrew Jones was certainly on that radar, but you didn't have multiple prospect lists and all of the things available to you via the internet. So what exactly did the Braves know that they had in the minor leagues when Andrew Jones came up? And what kind of an impact was he going to make? It was kind of an unknown, and that's something that just doesn't happen as much today. So I asked Eddie Perez a little bit about the first impressions of Andrew Jones coming up to the big leagues and joining what was already a club doing a lot of winning. It wasn't that publicity like it is now. Bonds, yeah, we heard about him in spring training and, and, and all that stuff, but, we're, we're, you know, we... We were in the big league, we were playing games, and this is 96. And, you know, we were expecting to go to the World Series again. And then all of a sudden we saw Andre, and we were like, oh my. And Bobby told us about it because it's got in report. It's not like now that you pick up the phone and see how the kid's yeah. looking in the minor league and all yeah. that stuff. But I'll never gonna forget those two homers to hit in the World Series. And it's, I was in the bullpen, man, I was so excited. And the second homer he hit, I was, you can see the replay, I was, I was jumping up and down. Yeah. 
and uh, you know that was that was a good feeling. The good thing about Andre is, is he he wants to win. He always wants to do the right thing to win games, and he was. I keep saying he's the best I ever saw, and, and still right now, I didn't see anybody close to him. And you know, Michael's really good, and we saw Ender in Seattle a couple of years here, but Andrew was unbelievable. Andrew was, you know, you see all those numbers, and then the Hall of Fame from from Glav and, and Smoltz and, and, and Maddox, and I think we have to thank Andrew for being in center field that, those days. And, and, and save us some runs and, and do all the things that he did. Now we spend all kinds of time debating who's the best to do this or that, who's the best this year, who was the best last year, who is going to be the best the next time. You don't really have that many conversations about best defensive center fielder in which Andrew Jones' name doesn't come up. So I couldn't let Eddie Perez go without asking him if people truly understand in the big picture how good Andrew was in center field because instinctually speaking, this is a guy who played the game on another level, and the metrics would back it up. If the eye test wasn't enough for you, this may be the best center fielder we ever see. The thing is, is I look at it this way. If you saw Andrew play center field, you would say, my God, nobody's going to be close to him. Yeah. And, but if you look at numbers, I mean, number for me, I know they're big deals, but the way he plays center field, how quick he jumps is, well, before they fling the bat, all the stuff I see guys like I remember Ozzy Gillian came over here and I told him you're gonna see some good center field and he said no I'm be playing with good center fielders so I said well watch this guy and he told me about Devon White uh, yeah. and I said well watch this kid I, I know I watched Devon White and I, I watched some guys but look at this kid and, and, I, and I remember a week later Ozzy came to me and he said Eddie you're right yeah. This is the best I've ever seen. And I said, and you've been in this game for a while, and you've been playing with good players. And to me, that, that come out in my mind all the time. And, and, and like you said, numbers, he got some good numbers. But watching him playing, watching catch on fly ball, or land drive, I can see hitters hit the ball and coming back to the dugout mad because they thought yeah. it were base hits. And, and it's something that I didn't see from anybody in the big league so far. Hard to argue with Eddie Perez there. He played with Andrew Jones. He should certainly know. I think we all enjoy watching what Michael Harris has been doing over the first couple of years of his career, and I'm sure he's going to continue to give us some highlight-level play. There was just something special about what Andrew Jones did. I also caught up with a teammate who met Andrew Jones a little bit later in his career and is now part of the broadcast team for Bally Sports. Nick Green played for the Braves in 2004, came up through the Braves system, though, so he knew all about Andrew Jones as part of the winning that the Atlanta club had been doing all through the 90s and early 2000s. And I wanted to get Nick's impression of what he'd heard about, what he'd seen, and then what it was like to take the field and watch Andrew Jones patrol center field. Yeah, I think there are a couple things. And number one, obviously the defense was really good. It felt like every time I turned around, he was three or four steps into his route to the ball. And I had never seen that before. I knew he was good. I obviously I knew all about him before I got to the big leagues. But to see that in person was incredible. And we've never seen anything like that since. And so I think the defensive side of it, is something that obviously is one of those things that you can't ever take for granted. And he's the best defensive center fielder in the game for me, for my era. So I uh, love that, but also love the fact that, um, you know, he was an even keel guy every time, every day. And it was didn't matter if he punched out three times, didn't matter if he had a swing that we all laughed at, he was still the same guy the next day. And that, to me, that, that tells you, uh, obviously, he, had, he can laugh at himself and he can deal with adversity. Not that he dealt with a ton of adversity at that time, but um, yeah, he was a complete player and 
and I, I just really enjoyed playing with him. Do you think people understand exactly how good he was instinctually in center? No. Uh, it's hard to even put into words because he knew where to play, when to move, uh, when to play shallow, when to play a little bit deeper, when to move to the gaps. It just felt like he knew where the ball was going at all times. And obviously he was familiar with his pitchers too, so he knew if guys were going to hit their spots, he knew what the hitter was going to do. And that's hard to do. It's hard to stay focused on that and actually look at the data to kind of put it into perspective when you actually get on the field. So, yeah, I don't think you can even describe how difficult that is and how well he did it. Certainly appreciate Eddie Perez and Nick Green making a little bit of time for me this week at Truist Park. They played alongside Andrew Jones. All of us watched in awe with what Andrew did in center field. So it's a wonderful honor and a cool moment to see Andrew Jones, the 10-time gold glover, the man who was done it probably better than anybody we're ever going to see and was a part of one of the greatest eras in Braves baseball have his number retired alongside Dale Murphy, Bobby Cox, Chipper Jones, Warren Spahn, John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, Phil Negro, Eddie Matthews, and Tom Glavin. There's what's ahead for the week to come for the Braves as they close out this weekend against the Pittsburgh Pirates, of course. One more game on Saturday, then it's four games in three days against the Philadelphia Phillies. A doubleheader on Monday, followed by Tuesday and Wednesday night games. Off day on Thursday, which the Braves will get to spend down in Miami. I'm sure they're not upset about that which of course means they'll be closing out next weekend against the Marlins. The Braves are going into Saturday night's action with a magic number of eight. By the time we talk next weekend, the Braves could have the National League East all wrapped up for the sixth consecutive year. What is that going to mean over the final couple of weeks of the season? They'll play the Phillies again at home, then the Nationals, before a final homestand against the Cubs, and then the Nationals, and the regular season will be in the books. We're only about three weeks away from that being a reality. And then the real fun begins because the postseason is upon us. And as we talked about in this show, what is Atlanta's postseason rotation going to look like? Is Kyle Wright going to factor in that? There's some intrigue going down the stretch. Even if the Braves have a huge lead and have the National League East taken care of, can they hold on to best record? Because it seems like their best challenger at the Los Angeles Dodgers, a team that the Braves beat up on head-to-head, it seems like that team is a little bit beat up in general. And that, of course, could affect the race for best record in all of baseball and home field advantage throughout the postseason. That'll wrap things up for this edition of From the Diamond. As always, I appreciate you spending some time with me here throughout the course of the weekend. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. want to thank my guests for this show, guys that made time for me at the ballpark, including Nick Green and Eddie Perez, who you just heard from, and, of course, Chip Carey, the longtime voice of the Braves, good friend of mine. Appreciate him making some time for me, and great to catch up with Alvin Gonzalez of ESPN. If you missed anything on the show, it'll be available on the podcast, so make sure you subscribe. And until next week, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. So long, everyone.